This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. Hi, LSPod fans, it's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin, sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to the Lobe Strangers, a Swindon Town fan podcast with me, Rich Pullen. Rogers is streaking ahead and he's onside. Beautiful play! That is that! What a good shot! Oh, my goodness, it's a goal! My goodness, foul! Far post for Shearer, goal! I will win this league anyway. Richard, he's hit it. It's Crabbley! Hello and welcome to the Low Strangers podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. My guest for this episode is Lee Bedwell. One of the things I wanted to do when I started this podcast was talk to people with experiences of Swindon Town from all sides. So as much fun and as much as I enjoy talking to the players who have played hundreds of times for Swindon, I also really, really find it interesting when I talk to players who played not as many. And Lee falls into the latter category. He only played about 69-70 minutes for Swindon at senior level. But those 69 minutes or 70 minutes happened in quite unusual circumstances and circumstances that are still well known today. Regardless to how many minutes Lee played, he achieved something that many Swindon youths couldn't quite do and something that many Swindon Town fans dreamed of doing and that was representing Swindon Town Football Club at senior level. I do believe that many football fans forget that fringe players and youth players observe so many events. Even though they may not be on the pitch, they have front row seats and insider observations to some of the most fascinating eras in Swindon's history. Lee was around for the entire Paolo Di Canio era. In fact, he was understudy to Wes Fodringham during that fantastic League One campaign where we came so close 
to get into Wembley if it wasn't for a penalty shootout at Brentford. We talk about all of this, of course, during the episode. Since leaving Swindon Town, Lee has represented Banbury United and Didcot Town. He was also selected in late 2018 to be a member of a Football Association Select eleven to go on a goodwill trip to the Falkland Islands, something not every footballer at that level of the pyramid can boast. Lee can, and we find out what that experience was like. I'll never tire talking to ex-Swindon Town players, so of course it was amazing listening to Lee's experiences, and I hope you guys enjoy it too. Anyway, it's time to sound the hooter for the Low Strangers podcast. Enjoy. Good evening, how are we? I am very well, thank you. Thank you for agreeing to take part. Absolute pleasure. It's nice for um, for you to be interested in my story and hopefully uh, other people are as well. You've listened to the podcast before, so you probably know what my first question is, is who did you support when you were younger and who were your heroes? Well, being Oxfordshire born, but I'm actually Swindon bred, so I'm a Swindon fan. Bit of an odd one, but my, my dad lived in a small village called Hanny and a couple in the village used to support, support Swindon. They used to take him on the bus to Swindon games. He became an avid Swindon fan when he was older and then uh, the punishment got passed on down to um, me, my brother and sister as well. We're all Swindon fans in the house, so yeah. It's, uh, it's a different one. Obviously, Oxfordshire, mainly Oxford fans. So I grew up with a lot of Oxford fans, but I took quite quite a lot of pride in being different, being a Swindon fan. When I was growing up, the um, my first first player that I really idolised at Swindon was probably Danny Invincible. Looking back, I can't remember how much of a good player he was. Um, I'm not sure if it was just an incredible name for a footballer or he was good, but I just remember him being my favourite player at the time. And the goal that he scored against Peterborough, I think it was, always sticks out in my head. And I think that was the moment when I realised football football was for me because I just saw everyone going delirious in the stands and see how much it meant to people. I thought, yeah, this is a bit of me. So there's players like Danny Invincible at that time, Bart Grimmink as well, had a soft spot for him. And then going through, it was people like Sam Parkin, Sammy Igo, Brian Howard, uh, Andy Gurney, of all players, Tommy Mooney. So that sort of era was when I was sort of deep, deep in uh, involved with the club and really, really started to idolise these people. And then moving forward, it's like Reese Evans, another goalkeeper. And then people like David Lucas, as I was getting older and then lucky enough to actually train with Big Dave as well. So it was a nice moment working with him as well after idolising him for a few years. When did you become a goalkeeper? Well, I was probably about five or six years old. I'm just playing for like my local team. Started started out pitch, first of all. A few months in, I was, I was like, this isn't for me. I wanted to be a goalkeeper. I must have enjoyed diving around, jumping around. But my dad, was he was desperate for me not to play in goal. <laughs> I remember going up to him, asking him to buy me a pair of gloves. He was desperate for me not to go in goal. He said, what do you want to go in goal for? They're the ones you get blamed for everything. You make a mistake, you're not going to enjoy it. But um, I've got an older brother who's about 10 years older than me and he just said I just let him let him have a go let him give it a go he won't want to do it and then he'll be back on back on the outfield side but no he got me the gloves started playing in goal and and never really looked back Um, so like I said I was five or six years old and pretty much from the get-go decided I wanted to be a goalkeeper you've been grounded into that goalkeeper position by choice since the age of five 
Do you remember your your scouted story? Yeah, so it's a, again, it's a bit of a strange one, really, because it was it was a Swindon Football in the Community Soccer School, but it was they had actually come all the way over a village called Ardington which is just around the corner from me, obviously in Oxfordshire again. So it was a bit peculiar that they'd come out to Oxford Way, started branching out. But obviously as a Swindon fan, I was as soon as I saw the leaflet or whatever it was, I knew straight away, I was like, mum, dad, I've got to go to this. It's Swindon are coming. They're doing like, basically a tour and they're coming to Oxfordshire. We've, we've got to go. So me, there must have been a handful of my mates who went. I remember, all I can remember is just playing in a game, just a little five-a-side game. I was playing in goal. I must have been having an absolute stormer because the coach kept asking me who do I play for, how long I've been playing in goal, things like that. I think his name was Luke Sharp, actually. I remember him quite um, vividly. He's a really nice bloke. And he said, oh, I think we're going to have to get you in, in at the academy. Being a young lad, I was probably seven, eight years old at the time. I didn't really know what that meant. It went straight over my head. I was like, oh, for play football? Yeah, absolutely. So I was, um, I was bang up for it. He sorted it out. He obviously spoke to my mum at the end of the uh, football in the community course and exchanged details and sorted it out had a had a six-week trial at the club and then obviously got offered the contract but talking of scouting before before that obviously i was playing locally for my local team grove challengers generally around here it was in playing in the oxford male boys league so um all the managers from the teams they would select their stronger players to go and have a trial at oxford united so when I was, just before I had the trial at Swindon, obviously I had this opportunity to go to Oxford and already being a Swindon fan and my dad being a Swindon fan, I was like, no, no, I can't go and do that. That, that goes against everything I've been brought up to do. But my dad was like, no, you've you got to go, you've been given a chance, just go, never know what might happen. And I was like, I was, I took some convincing, if I'm honest, because like I said, it went against every bone in my body to go and do it. So I think I, uh, my dad agreed on I'd go, but only if I could wear my Swindon shirt. Um, <laughs> So I wore my Swindon shirt. It was a, a white make at the time. It was Xara. It was a nationwide sponsor. And I think it was the season when it was Bart Grimmink and Steve Mildenhall. They were both they were both at the club. And it was the, the white one was what Steve Mildenhall was wearing in the team photo. Um, so I wore that. Um, anyway, I was unsuccessful in the trial. Obviously, wasn't bothered anyway. Um, and then further down the line, I got the opportunity at Swindon, which I was a lot more bothered about. Wore the same shirt there. And obviously, the story was different. I got offered the trial and the, and the contract at the end of it which was when I was eight nine years old so that was a, a dream come true playing for the team's support even at, even at that age just wearing the badge it's obviously something that you dream about doing properly on the county ground pitch but if you can do it from that age it's even better as well at what age do you think footballers start thinking beyond who you support because at the moment Swindon have got Kenny's Carroll on loan who is on loan from Brentford but he is Oxford through and through of course he had the option to go I ain't playing for Swindon but yeah at what point do you think it becomes like this is my job and regardless this team is interested in me so I've got to go out there and play I'm not sure it's a it's a tricky one really because I've always I've always thought if I if I'd have had the opportunity to stay at Swindon even longer and if I would have to probably probably made it and become an established first team player in my head I always thought it'd be really difficult for me to leave because that's that was my ambition. That's what I wanted to do. And it's sort of like, if you look at the players, like Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs, they were they were playing at their club and there's no reason to leave. Um, but like you say, obviously with Canis, I know a few of his friends from Oxford Way. Uh, I don't think things worked out at Oxford in the end and he got, uh, he got the move he wanted. So I think he possibly sort of, you fall out in and out of love with a club. Mm. Sort of sort of look at them like ex-girlfriends, I think. That's, that's the way I look at Swindon at the moment anyway, because obviously it's, it's something you're very passionate about at a time. And then you part ways and you sort of, you sort of want them to be happy. You want them to do well. But at the same time, you don't really want them to do too well without you. <laughs> so that, that's sort of where I sit on it yeah. um, in, a, in a weird sort of way. 
uh, I hope you're still on friendly terms and not just stalking them on Facebook or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think we'd, we'd still be friends on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll go back to when you're just starting out because a lot of the things you read as a football fan about footballers is is sacrifices, and you have found yourself within a professional football setup at a very, very early age. It's often said how integral support from family are. Your dad supports Swindon, so that's probably a really, really good start. Um, but what are the sort of sacrifices parents have to do to ensure that their children have the best possible uh, chance of making it? Absolutely, yeah. There's um, My parents made massive sacrifices for me, something that I'll be obviously eternally grateful for. It was at some points I was travelling into Swindon four times a week. Monday and a Thursday would be outfield training with the lads an hour and a half maybe two hours sometimes um, and then on Saturday morning we'd have the goalkeeper training which would be again hour hour and a bit and then on the Sunday you'd have the matches so obviously that's four times a week going into Swindon a lot of time you're you're spending playing football but it's a lot of time your parents are spending traveling there with you for you waiting around for you then then bringing you back as well and, and for us really obviously not being in Swindon, so it's a little bit further to traffic at those times, trying to get into training on time. Um, and then you've got the games on the Sunday as well, where mm. you've sometimes got to make your own way there. And in our sort of, the teams we were playing was Oxford United, Bristol Rovers, which isn't too bad, it was close. Then you've got people like Plymouth, Exeter, Torquay, which are obviously quite a distance away. And on a Sunday morning, it's not always what you want to be doing, driving down to, I remember many a times getting up half five, six o'clock, getting ready to travel down to go to those places and yeah it's, it's, it's a massive sacrifice for parents and obviously some unfortunately can't can't do it whether it's financially or if they just can't commit to it which is unfortunate but I was very lucky that my um, my mum and dad always made sure that I could get to these places um, for the right time and gave me the best opportunity I could to succeed so I think anyone who, who gets any opportunity to play professional football or even if you don't get to play professional football if you're in that academy setup there's a big sacrifice the parents have to take and it's it normally goes unthanked until you get a little bit older and you really realize what they've done for you so yeah it's, it takes a lot of sacrifice from your parents and, and your family it's quite amazing really kelly is only a couple of yards away but digby manages to push it one-handed onto the bar when i was young there was a video definitely not a DVD, called uh, Danny Baker's Own Goals and Gaffs. There was also a sequel, but he talks about goalkeepers in a segment which, of course, leads to goalkeepers making mistakes. And he, he always he has a great little sort of bit where he talks about everybody's a goalkeeper at some point when they're a kid, but then they sort of grow out of it. They, you know, discover girls and booze and things like that <laughs> and nights out. But some, a select few, stay a goalkeeper. So to many kids... The role of the goalkeeper is often seen as unglamorous. How do youth coaches keep young goalkeepers focused on staying in that position? It's a tricky one. I don't think anyone else can can make you be a goalkeeper. Whether it's your if it's your mum, your dad, whoever, a coach, they want you to be a goalkeeper. Unless you want to be a goalkeeper, I don't think you've got you've got a chance of making someone be a goalkeeper because you've got to have that passion of wanting to keep the ball out of the back of the net, whether that's saving it with your hands, with your feet, or saving it with your face. Um, and if you if you don't want to get hit in the face with the ball, if you don't want to be getting kicked, it's, it's, 
I'm not really selling it here, but it's not it's not a great job. It's not like you say, it's not glamorous at all. So you, for me, you've got to really want to do it. And then once you want to do it, you have to keep yourself motivated. You have to remember why you're doing it, why you enjoy it. You've really got to have that passion for it. Most goalkeepers, and you're, you've probably heard a lot of goalkeepers say this, once they've made that top corner save or that, that really important save, that gives the goalkeeper the same feeling as scoring a goal. Um, and if it gives you that feeling, that's when you know you, you want to be a goalkeeper and you are a goalkeeper. If you don't get that feeling from making a save, then yeah, goalkeeping's not for you. And did you have that urge from that very, very early age of five of just that, that feeling of stopping the ball going in was so much more stronger than putting the ball in the net yourself? Yeah, I, I can't really remember having that urge as such, but I must have had it to carry on. I think it as well with the goalkeeping, it's... It's wanting that pressure, wanting to be that, that last line of defence mm. that it's all on you. In kids' football, if you think the ball's come over the top, people are running through, it's you and the striker, it's, they're looking at you, you're looking them down, you're, you're looking at each other in the eyes. It's that pressure and I think that's what I enjoy about it. You're, you've got an opportunity to be the star of the show as such. So there's that side of it as well. Moving on to the youth setup at Swindon then, there are two names that really stand out when... I talk to players and when I talk to anybody who knows anything about Swindon really and the first one is Jimmy Fraser who would have been there when you started. He had a tremendous reputation, went to Chelsea. What were your experiences of Jimmy? Jimmy was a he was a top top bloke like really think, thinking back about him it was a, a long time ago now but he was just such a people person. I can't even really remember that much on the football side but the Jimmy he just as soon as I was on that 6 week trial coming in he just welcomed you in straight away you felt part of it and he knew everything about you he knew your mum your dad he knew your brothers your sisters he knew your cousins he knew everyone's name and he'd never remember he'd never forget them sorry it was just one of those things that he just made everyone feel welcome it was made you feel part of it all um, even when he like you say when he left to Chelsea that was that was devastating because he was sort of the heart and soul of the centre of excellence um, but even then when we went on and played um, Chelsea a couple of years later I remember walking into the Chelsea training ground with my mum and dad and it he remembered their names, he said hello to them, and that was a good few years later. So I think it just shows the sort of bloke Jimmy was, real down-to-earth and, like I said, a, a proper people person. And he was he was running the centre of excellence at a time where the club was, wasn't in a great place financially, so it was a, a real struggle for him as well. But he always done his best and, uh, and kept everyone going. I remember there being a big meeting once because the club couldn't afford to give any of the centre of excellence players any kit. So there was a time when we first came into the season and everyone was just in their own in their own clothes. So it looked a bit mismatched. Jimmy, instead of calling a meeting or sending a letter out saying that everyone had to pay for their kit if they wanted kit, um, he just arranged me and said, listen, we're in, a, we're in a sticky spot. If you can donate anything to help us out with the kit, to help the boys out, um, that would be great. So I thought that was a, a real nice touch for him. He could have sort of said, right, everyone either pays or, or we don't have a training kit, but he made it so everyone had that opportunity to, to get some. Um, and I think that summed him up, really. He was just, just a great bloke. And obviously, he's gone on and proved himself and done on uh, brilliant at Chelsea as well. After after Jimmy, I think, I can't really remember if it was Nutty or Jeremy Newton who took it on straight away. But I think there was a patch where Ify and Nora might have been involved. Mm. I certainly remember Ify being involved in the centre of excellence. And again, it was a time when the, the club was struggling. And I think at one point, he was running the centre of excellence and doing the first team as well. But again, Ify sort of had very similar traits to Jimmy. He was a real sort of larger-than-life character. He was, he was brilliant. And I remember when he, was, when he was in charge of the first team, he was out on the training pitch at the training ground with the centre of excellence lads 
and he's thrown me his car keys. He said, oh, can you go and, go and get this out of the car for me? So I went went into his car, go got it, and I saw sort of saw a clipboard turned over on his front seat. And as a Swindler fan, my thoughts were, he's definitely got the start 11 for Saturday wrote down on that. And I thought, should I have a look? Should I have a look? And I thought, no, I can't do that. But no, yeah, if he was brilliant as well, his job when he was in the um, centre of excellence, and obviously wasn't that successful with the first team, but I think that was a that was a tricky job. And I think he went on to he went on to manage a national team somewhere. I think it was the Ethiopia. Yeah. But yeah, and I think he works at the EFA in some capacity now. But yeah, another great person who worked at the Centre of Excellence. Jeremy Newton was another pivotal member of the youth system. What are your What were your memories of him? Yeah, Nutty, Nutty was great as well. He was when I first went to Swindon. He was the assistant coach to the team below me. Um, so he really sort of earned his stripes through the Centre of Excellence as well. Sort of worked his way up. And almost sort of as a young player, I was working alongside him and he was going across his uh, coaching badges as well. So it was great to see when I got to the sort of end of the academy, he was he was right at the top running things as well. But really, he was the same as Jimmy, he sort of the way he, he spoke to people. He was a great people person. He sort of brought everyone in and he's a really, really funny bloke as well. Really funny. The impressions he could do. If you ever get the chance to speak to him, he's got an incredible Scooby-Doo impression of all, of all things. But yeah, the, the whole academy setup was was a great time for me as well as you've got people like Nutty, Jimmy, if you're there, you've got legends or whatever it's like such as uh, obviously Paul Bowden and, and John Trollope as well. I think um, when my dad was watching me being trained by those people, he was really living his dream as well. I think in uh, seeing people like that on the training ground. Something I've always wanted to ask goalkeepers, do they develop you guys in other positions in case, you know, you don't have a growth spurt or as much of a growth spurt as you would want um, because goalkeepers traditionally are quite tall or is it as ruthless as you're released if you don't develop yeah I think it is really it's sort of if you're a goalkeeper at, at that age if you get into an older age uh, sort of towards the end of the academy if you're a goalkeeper you're a goalkeeper at that level if you wanted to play outfield you'd probably have to, to drop down back into sort of the, the non-academy level but on the other foot there's a lot of outfield drills um, keep ball passing drills that you do with the outfield players which I think is really important back in that time I don't know if they were sort of academies were on the front foot thinking about developing goalkeepers in that way but sort of certainly nowadays, if I'm when I'm coaching or if I'm playing, I, I like to do the outfield drills as well. I think it's really important, as you see in the Premier League, when you've got goalkeepers like Edison, who people consider he can probably play out pitch as well. He's that good with the ball at his feet. It's really important the goalkeepers can do it. I, when I read Schmeichel's book, he said something about he'd always join in the first little bit of the outfield session just to, to not only prove to himself, but prove to his teammates that he can play with his feet. So you're earning that trust and, and respect from your teammates as well. So I don't think there's really sort of a, a chance of if, you, if you're not tall enough or if you're not, you haven't got the physique to be a goalkeeper, I don't think there's that chance to come out out, out pitch. But it is really important that you um, develop those skills as well because you have your specialised goalkeeping training. But those are outfield drills, those passing drills, keep ball, like I said, are, are really important as well because at the end of the day, you are, you are a footballer and you need to use your feet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just strikes me that the chances of making it as a professional goalkeeper seem, and this is just my opinion, slimmer than it is for an outfield player because there are only two or at best three vacant positions within a senior squad. How do coaches keep you believing and being motivated towards achieving the ultimate goals? Well, like you say, it is difficult as a goalkeeper because if you're an outfield player, if you're if you're a right back, um, you might be able to come on, do a job at centre-half. If you're, if you're a striker, you might be able to get a game on the wing. It is really difficult for a goalkeeper if you're going to get your chance 
it's going to be in that one position and it's probably going to be at the expense of your mate because goalkeepers are tend to be quite quite closely trained together closely so it is difficult it is very difficult for a goalkeeper to be given that opportunity um i know more than well enough myself but yeah you've just got to keep at it and hope hope you get that chance for goalkeepers every goalkeeper i've ever worked with has, has loved training and doing training so that's where you really earn your stripes and hope you get that opportunity from then onwards were there anybody else or was there anybody else who went all the way through the ranks with you yeah obviously that's something that i'm immensely proud of going from of under nines all the way through um to the first team although i'd like to play a bit more in the first team that they're still um, a really proud achievement of myself i don't think in my age group there was anyone who went all the way through there was a couple who got close you got um alex henshaw as well Mm -hmm. who didn't make a first team appearance um but obviously he got sold to uh, manchester city at some point but he was in the first team squad away to fulham i remember in the fa cup um when he was just under 16s but he he was the same age group as me we actually signed at the same time had our six-week trials at the same time and then signed and went through all the way and obviously he got his his unbelievable move, which was always going to be tricky to make it work out, but I'm sure he wouldn't. You wouldn't change anything because that's an unbelievable experience. Then you've got in the years below me, uh, Louis Thompson and Aaron Oakley, who had the same sort of path as me. They made it all the way through. Um, Aaron, who I'm obviously re- really close with as well. And then a few years above me, you have got people like Billy Bowden um, and Will Evans, who I'm pretty sure. Um, were there from the start who are obviously players who got given the opportunity and I think Will Evans I don't know if you saw (laughs) a few weeks back he had a he had a little stint in gold as well but um, but yeah he was one when he he was a pro at Swindon I don't think he made an appearance but he was the youth team captain when I was an under 16 and he was a he was a proper player he could play centre half or centre mid I think it was disappointing that he didn't get a chance because he had people like uh, Gordon Greer Sean Morrison in front of him and it was it was always going to be an uphill task. He, but yeah, I think he might have been one that got away. He did get, a, he did get a game. It was I think in the um, Johnston's paint, and he came on I think very early. But he played very well, but didn't play again. Fairly certain. Yeah. He he, he got some minutes, yeah. and it was a surprise that he wasn't utilised um, after that. Yeah, him and him and Billy being a few years above me, they were sort of the, the top boys in that age group and they were very high for, highly thought of at the club. So, yeah, obviously Billy's gone on to do unbelievably well uh, and Will's done well as well on his own, but I'd like to see him got a bit more of an opportunity at Swindon as well. Something, again, that always used to pop up and it's something that the club used to really pride itself on and that's the Milk Cup. Um, did you manage to go out to Northern Ireland? Yeah, I managed to get the opportunity to go to the Milk Cup. Great, great opportunity. It was the first sort of taste you're about 14 15 years old it was the first taste of being sort of a professional footballer because they are they were mad for it over there had no idea it was going to be like that like i say we were, we were only young lads 14 15 but we were signing on autographs having pictures we're on parades and a lot and it was it was it was mad it was really mad um i think the trip's always been um funded by the supporters club at swindon as well it, it definitely was the time i went um, so it just shows the sort of when they're coming around with a bucket and things that they really do do good things at a supporters club flying over sort of 16 lads and coaches over to Northern Ireland for a for a massive youth tournament that was a, a, a great experience I think we played um, in the group stage we think we played Maccabi Tel Aviv and then we sort of mixed up into groups we played an Irish team I think we played Watford and Maccabi Tel Aviv yeah and then we got knocked out in the quarterfinals to Everton who, who went on to win it 
actually. So not not a bad team to be knocked out of, but we're a little bit disappointed because obviously past experiences and past victories in that that competition, we thought we could have gone a bit further, but getting knocked out by the uh, actual winners was a uh, wasn't a mean feat they had a lad called uh hallam hope up front yeah. he plays for carlisle now scores he's been scoring quite recently for carlisle i think but he he scored against us scored against me went on to win player of the tournament along with alex henshaw as well so that that was nice for the club as well obviously not a massive club but we're out there with big clubs man united were there um everton obviously then for alex one of our lads to go and get the player of the tournament award joint with another lad that was uh that was pretty special but like i said no the milk cup unbelievable experience and forever grateful for sports clubs for giving us that opportunity to go across there if they won send me off every game no problem i will win this league anyway because my team is a strong team they're world. we play football even if they send me off we win this league no problem we'll talk about paul bowden in the the last stages of your youth career in just a moment but who were your goalkeeper coaches within the youth setup so when i first went to swindon it was sal bibbo mm-hmm. um who was an absolute man mountain a, a really big guy i remember turning up to a first goalkeeper session and i was like nine years old and i was like wow this this is what i need to be like if i want to i want to be a goalkeeper but um he he wasn't around for too long unfortunately he was a he was a very good coach it was my first real proper goalkeeping coaching really from then, from before then, I was just, I was just winging it, playing locally. Never really had any proper goalkeeper coaching, so that was my first taste of it. And I think he just sort of fueled the fire inside me, and really made me want to push on. So he obviously, like I said, he was good at his job, and I think he got a move to Reading, mm. where he sort of he was in the academy and he worked his way up. He, he done really well. I'm not sure. I think he went to Arsenal, Arsenal, didn't he? Yeah, yeah I think, I think he is at Arsenal or somewhere. Eventually, that's where he ended up. So, um, so that says it all. He was he was a brilliant coach, um, and that was the sort of time where the club, like I said before, were struggling financially, and a goalkeeper coach for the the centre of excellence wasn't probably top of the list. So there was a period of maybe a season, season and a half, where we didn't really have a goalkeeping coach at all, um, which is a bit disappointing. But it was one of those things. But at that time, the first team goalkeeper was Reece Evans. And I remember him coming down loads of times, coming down and putting on sessions for us, which for me as a fan was was incredible because it was the first team goalkeeper coming down to uh, Greendown School on a cold Thursday night. It was the horrible old Astro as well, the the green sort of Mm. carpet with the sand on top. And he was coming down, putting on sessions for us. So that was that was incredible. I remember taking a lot from Reese and uh, Actually, as I got a little bit older, I got into contact with him and uh, spoke to him more. And I sort of a bit further down the line, but he's a really great guy, and uh, his his coaching was brilliant as well. And uh, as I listened to the podcast the other day, I heard he's obviously doing a bit of Hereford, but he's hoping to get further into it as well. And I think it would definitely be a, a bit of him, something right up his street. And then obviously after after we we got a full time goalkeeping coach in Steve Hale, who is someone who I've grown really close to over the years. He again, he's. He's a brilliant coach. He hasn't got probably the experience, uh, Reese, on the playing side. But what Steve has is he might as well have wrote the manual at the FA because he is a very well-educated coach, massively qualified, and he's a great bloke as well. So to have a goalkeeper coach, to be that sort of, have that personality as well as the knowledge of what to do, it's sort of, it's, it, it all adds together for a great session. So yeah, those were really the three three coaches I had goalkeeping wise uh, going through the centre of excellence how many people so for the 16 to 18 bit which is the the latter stages of an academy the the under 18s the big one how many people get cut before that do most of you trans 
make the transition or is there a heavy cut at 15-16? So under 16s is obviously when they make the decisions for the scholars and that really is they can take as many as they want or as little as they want. Hmm. Um, I know the year before me they um, decided to take two of the actual Swindon youth team lads and then they got a lot a lot of lads in from trials elsewhere, oh, exit wow. trials or other clubs. Um, that was when that was when Dave Byrne was in charge yeah. or he played a part. And a lot of the lads came from sort of down that way. There was two lads from Plymouth. I think they paid money for them, um, Evo and Seb Broomfield. And they were they were good players. It was sort of mad playing, paying money for, for lads to come into the youth team at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. It, it does vary because they are, like I said, they took two from the under 16s that year before me. And then my year, they took about six or seven of us. And then the only one they got from outside was Miles Story. He obviously became a very close friend of mine as well. So, yeah, it varies really. I think it, it goes on quality wise, what they fancy, whether it fits in. And also, it sort of matters with the, the year before. For example, if you've, got, if you've got five defenders from one year, the next year, are they going to be looking to take on any defenders? from that year group because they're going to have plus five defenders you're only probably going to play four maximum of five at a time mm. um, so I think that plays a part in it as well so it's, it's a lot a lot to it when you're 15 or 16 you may not be consciously thinking about it but you really do have to be mentally strong don't you in the, in the insecurities of you know oh, they've got this amount of people on trial in my position is it me or is it just that they're having a look around uh, are you sort of trained to be mentally strong or is that the survival of the fittest of the ones who aren't mentally strong the ones that don't make it yeah, I think I think uh, in my time, saying I'm saying like it's a long time ago. It's not that long mm-hmm. ago, but there, we weren't really undeveloped um, that much psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, it was sort of we turned up for training, um, we trained, we went home, we turned up for the matches at the weekend. But I think nowadays there's a lot more to the other side as well. I see a lot on the um, on the clubs um, academy page that they do a lot more than just on the football pitch. They do a lot more. Um, physically for them they do little gym sessions where they're working on their core stability and things like that so I think it's moved on a long way um, from them but you're absolutely right you have to be psychologically sound and there is that paranoia that when someone comes in are they coming in to take your place but that that's again it's preparing you for the big bad world of professional football because there's always going to be someone um, looking to come in take your place and you've got to deal with it so the earlier you recognise that and be able to deal with it the easier it's going to be when you get older and more comfortable you're going to be with it. So I think it's all a learning curve. But like I say, I think these days there's a lot more support on how to deal with it, whereas we had to sort of figure it out for ourselves all those years ago. <laughs> you made it to the uh, the under-18s under Paul Bowden, is that correct? Yep, so, I believe Bowden was the gaffer. So Paul Bowden, Zippy as we like, me and your dad would like to call him, he's an absolute hero. I spoke to him for this podcast and he was just perfect. <laughs> um, yeah unbelievable um to me for that for that podcast but what were your experiences of those two years paul was like you say to begin with an absolute legend i was fully aware of what he was all about um my dad had installed that in me my brother had spoke about it and i'd I'd seen him for years as well he's sort of been he'd been doing the um two years above me doing billy's age group all the way through i think um so i sort of seen him around the training ground but never really sort of had that opportunity to work with him and then obviously he was the the youth team manager and it was coming up to that stage and he's just an absolute gentleman a brilliant coach an absolute wand of a left foot that's what I remember because in training any demonstrations he'd be straight on it he'd show us exactly how it should be done he couldn't move but if he had a ball at his feet if it was a crossing drill 
he'd whip it in, show us exactly how it was done. There's a passing drill, he'd show us how it's done. Someone would boot a ball up in the air and he'd bring it down. Um, he still definitely had a bit about him playing-wise. He just he just couldn't move as much. So I think that made us have even more respect for him because we knew he was a great coach. But we then that showed us he was he was one hell of a player as well. And also, I think people forget about Paul. He's, he's a winner. He's such a nice bloke, but he is a winner. He got results in the youth team. He won it three years on the bounce, I think he won it. Uh, the two years before I was in the youth team, and then he won it my first year in the youth team as well. So he, he did a really good job at bringing a group of players together and making them a team. Um, obviously, it's not really about creating teams because oh, these days not a whole youth team goes into a first team. It's about developing the individual, but he managed to do both. I think he brought through quite a few players uh, at the same time as creating a winning team. So I can't speak highly enough of Paul. Um, as a person and as a coach, really. Because of social media, so things like Twitter and Instagram, we follow the trials and tribulations of youth teams far more than maybe we did 10 years ago. And what you get the sense of as an outsider looking in is it's a proper brotherhood. It's it's really, really close unit of footballers and friends. What were your favourite memories within that under-18s period? The the youth team days are definitely the best days of your life, mm. 100%. Even when you're a pro, it, just that you don't have the same, it's not the same camaraderie, like you say, it's just it's just not the same. When you're a youth team player, um, you're there early in the morning, you're all, you're all tired, you're all sort of sleeping the eyes, you're there, you're there to do your jobs, you're in the boot room, polishing boots, pumping up balls, washing cones, or you're down in the gym, sorting things out, you're going around to Roger the kit man begging him for some kit or trying to get a towel or something and then you go out and train and then you come back and if you're a pro you're sort of having your lunch and you're going away but in the youth team you've got to hang around you've got to hang around there was sort of an unwritten code that you weren't you weren't allowed to leave until five o'clock there was no real reason because you could get the job done early and go but in the youth team you hang around you take your time doing your jobs you go and play a little bit of head tennis in the gym you might mess about in the change rooms with the lads a few pranks it's it's just the best time because you're just with your mates playing football and you're having a laugh. There's, it's as simple as that, really. And I'll never forget those days. And uh, anyone who gets the opportunity to go and, and do something along those lines, you you got to do it because it's it's like a boys' club and it's just it's just great time. There's there's no other way to explain it. Did you have to clean a particular person's boots, or were they just uh, hanging on the rack? Well, when I was a um, when I was a first year scholar, it was the goalkeepers were Dave Lucas, Phil Smith, uh, Mark Scott, Jakub Jeskinowski. And I was always told that you clean the boots of the players in your position. Oh, and as a youth team player, I was the only <laughs> goalkeeper. So I had, I had all four goalkeepers. <laughs> when all the, all the other lads, um, they tended to have one or two players. So I think I was a little bit stitched up there. <laughs> But no, no, I wouldn't swap it. Obviously, there's the, the goalkeepers' union. I was more than happy to do it. In the end, I think one of the second years took Dave Lucas's boots off me because he wanted the Christmas bonus because he heard that Dave was a good payer. So uh, he took Dave's boots off. I mean, I couldn't really argue with him because I needed the time. But um, but no, um, cleaning the boots was obviously it's it's a bit old school now. But I think uh, it was a massive part, and it gives you that bridge to the first team mm. as well. Um, it gives them a reason to talk to you. And it gives you a reason to talk to them and it helps sort of build those relationships um, with them, which is obviously important. So we have the best days of your life as a footballer, as a youth team. And the best days of your life concludes with probably one of the worst days of your football career, which is the day you will find your fate 
in regards to whether you are taking on into the first team, you were successful, but a lot of your friends weren't. It is, it is absolutely hideous. It is a very tough day because obviously this is the day that you've been you've been working towards not only the last two years in the youth team, but all those years prior to that, whether um, it's in grassroots football or if it's in the academy football, you've been working towards this and this is sort of the pinnacle part of the journey. I remember our particular day when it was planned. Um, we got in the morning, trained, and it was meant to be in the afternoon, and they uh, they postponed it. <laughs> they postponed it and said, oh, we're, not, we're not doing it today, boys. We're going to do it uh, later on in the week. Uh, so I think this was on a Tuesday, and we had college the next day. So we were like, well, it's not going to be tomorrow. So it got dragged out to sort of Thursday, Friday in the week. Anyway, so it got to that day. We trained in the morning. No one really wanted to train. They just wanted to know what they were doing, um, if their life was going to just begin or if it was going to be over. Then we'd have lunch. Again, no one wanted lunch. They just wanted to know what was going on. Got all showered, changed, and we were sat together in the Legends Lounge, Winner's Bar, whatever it's called um, these days, all sat gathered around the table. And it was, I'm not joking, it felt like death row. You just sat Mm. there waiting, waiting to find your fate. Um, And it would be one by one. Jeremy Newton would come down the stairs, He'd come in through the door, or he'd pick one of you, say, say your name, you'd go through, and it would be a long walk with Natty all the way up the stairs, up to the uh, up to the suites upstairs, and him and Paul were sat at the table. Um, and not a word. There's no conversation you can make on the way to that journey. It was just complete silence. Um, and obviously a lot of lads got, um, got bad news, unfortunately, so they were coming down. And that's when it started to feel like death row. You thought, mm. well, we're not, no one's getting nothing here. We're all, we're all in the same boat. Um, the only person you really thought he was going to get something was Miles because he had a he had a lot of involvement with the first team where he was given. Um, I think Paul gave him the opportunity at the end of the season against Tranmere the season before, and then obviously he was involved with the first team that year as well. So a lot of lads came down, and then it was my turn to go up, and I thought, oh, here we go, another one. So I got up there, sat down, and the first words out of Paul's mouth were, um, "We're going to offer you a professional contract." And from that point on, that's where I was completely zoned out. It was sort of gone. I didn't hear a word he said after that. I got a lump in my throat, and it was sort of a very, very proud moment. Walked out, and the lads were like, and I was like, just nodded. I couldn't even speak. I was just like, yeah, I, I got one. Went straight outside, sort of tears coming down my face. Had to ring my dad. Um, couldn't speak to my dad on the phone because I was obviously that emotional not only for me but for him because like we spoke earlier about the sacrifice um it wouldn't have made any bad if if i'd have made it or not he would have still been proud i'm sure but to actually get over the line and get that opportunity that was sort of mission accomplished and uh of the proudest moment of my life like i said the youth team days were the best uh, best days of your life but i think that moment was sort of it was really it was up there because that's everything you've worked for um it's hard to describe yeah. what else it'd be like but yeah. it's uh it is really uh, sort of emotional stuff i couldn't imagine the weight of relief excitement and also feeling sorry for your teammates who haven't made made it through were there any players where you were sat around the legends sound going i cannot believe they haven't offered them a deal well it was very difficult because obviously like i said miles was sort of almost banged on to get one mm. but there was a lot of lads who had a lot of ability um, one that one that sticks out with the moment was Harry Grant. He was a, a very good player. When we were in the sort of a lot of clubs who were looking at him mm-hmm. uh, as well then, but he didn't um, he didn't get the opportunity. I think he went on to Sheffield Wednesday, Wednesday yeah. playing there under twenty threes. But yeah, nothing really came before that. And then his he went and played for his uncle Martin Allen. Uh, but yeah, he went and played for his uncle. Um, and then he's obviously slowly filtered down like a lot of us. Um, but no, there was a lot of good players, and I think. 
had there been uh, sort of an under 23s or an under 21 setting where they had that bit more opportunity to progress mm. uh, a few more lads would have got them but the, um, the club was sort of all out attack first team um, a lot of a lot of money was being spent on the first team there wasn't really room to get in another squad full of young players they sort of wanted results now but no like I say I, I had the opportunity which was unbelievable first team how firstly how is that different uh from the from the youth setup so when i was in the first team the setup obviously with paolo and all and the italians uh fabrizio claudio and then you got dominico the um the goalkeeping coach who is um he's brilliant he's he's absolutely mad spoke very very little english um to begin with when i first went over him when i was winning in the youth team it was very difficult to understand him but he'd always demonstrate always get his point across um so from a coaching point of view he's brilliant he he wasn't probably what i was used to as a goalkeeping coach i had a lot of sort of traditional english goalkeeping coaches and it was there was a lot of things that he wanted to to change and do um i know when i listened to reese's um interview with you he said about uh, an italian coming in at chelsea and it was it was very difficult it was probably very similar um for me but obviously being a little bit younger um, it's probably easier for me to adapt and try and take that on board but for older goalkeepers um it might have been trickier um but no dominico was was a brilliant goalkeeping coach and a great bloke as well he was sort of he'd always sort of let you know what's going on in the rest of the team as as all good goalkeeping coaches do they they give the goalkeepers a little bit more information to hold on to because you've got that tight knit group. But yeah, he was he was brilliant. You would have heard Reese say that he doesn't believe in the union of the goalkeeper, that famous goalkeepers union. Uh, yeah. Do you, Do you agree with that, or, or do you? Uh, I, I definitely definitely see where Reese is coming from yeah. with that because you you look out for each other, you do things properly together. But at the end of the day, they're your rival as well. So for me, yeah, I completely understand what he's saying. Um, there's that respect for goalkeepers. Um, if you're the second goalkeeper and you've got to warm the first goalkeeper up, you've got to do it properly. There's, there's only one way of doing it and you've got to do it properly. If you don't do it properly, you're completely out of order. Um, so I think that's sort of the respect, the sort of union as such. But then you've got to decide where you've got to do all you can to be better than that person to obviously play ahead of them. So I completely understand what you're saying with that. Sure. Let's, let's talk about some of your, your goalkeeping teammates and we'll go from youth all the way up to. So I have probably not got a complete list. So was Jamie Stevens? Did you train with Jamie? Yeah, so Jamie was the year above me. I When I was playing a year above, I was in the same team as him from sort of under 15s onwards. And Jamie was, he was the sort of absolute cat, as you describe as a goalkeeper, his sort of flexibility and his, the way he moved around the goal. He was uh, he was ridiculous the way he could throw himself about the goal, the saves he would make. Um, there's no surprise that he got that move to Liverpool because um, he was just he was unreal, and it was brilliant for me to train with him because obviously I, I was in direct competition with him, but he was at such a level. He was a year older than me, but I was training with him. But he was at such a level that I could think, wow, this is this is what I've got to be like. This is my sort of rather than being intimidated by it, it was sort of an inspiration to to push me on to work as hard as he did and follow his lead. 
Um, so he, he was a great goalkeeper to train with as well. Uh, were there any other youth level keepers? It must be Mark Scott, I guess. Yeah, so when I was when I was a youth team player, Scotty was a pro with Jakob, and then you had Phil and Phil Smith and David Lucas mm-hmm. as the main goalkeepers. Um, so there was four goalkeepers already in the first team, so it was a bit of a bit of an uphill task already <laughs> to get anywhere near that um, for one slot, like you said. But I um, I had the opportunity to train with them all when I was a, a youth team player because we didn't have a full time goalkeeping coach. Um, Steve Hale was. Uh, the academy goalkeeping coach and he was only part-time so he wasn't with us all week mm-hmm. um, so I got to go and train with those guys a lot um, which was brilliant Scotty was a great goalkeeper very very good shot stopper um, he was sort of in the mould of Dave Lucas I think and he was just I think he wasn't shy too shy away from getting an appearance yeah. he was very close he had a lot of loans out I think he played for Super in the FA Cup which he did really well with I think I remember him being at Salisbury as well, but he just never really got that opportunity at Swindon. But he was a great guy as well. Um, he really looked after me, being sort of a young lad in the first team and me coming through into the youth team. He sort of looked out for me with gloves, things like that, and it gave me lifts around the town. He's a, a really good guy. I've got to, I've got to ask about, is it Jakob or Jacob? Uh, Jakob. Jakob. Yes, yeah. He's, Jakob. A, he's an enigma to me, Jakob, because he was <laughs> here for a couple of years. Very he barely got on the bench, but he got himself a pro deal. It seemed like the most unnecessary signing ever. What was he like to train with? Yeah, I can't, being a student fan, I can't really remember where he came from or how it came about. Um, but yeah, Jakob, he was he was a lovely bloke, really good guy. As a goalkeeper, um, he couldn't really catch the ball. <laughs> uh, he, he couldn't really kick it either, but he was he was ridiculous at his shot stopping was a joke. He'd just find a way to stop the ball from getting in the net. But um, we used to play this uh, warm-up game, catching game, uh, where you'd just be stood in a, in a square or in a pentagon if there was five of us, um, and you'd volley the ball at each other. And if you dropped it or double-touched it, you'd lose a life. You'd have a certain amount of lives. And um, if you lost, you'd have to sing a song at the end. Um, so obviously, Dave Lucas was an unbelievable singer, but at the same time, he had unbelievable hands, so he was never dropping the ball. Same with <laughs> Phil. So it was always sort of between me, Scotty, and Jakob, who was gonna, who was gonna end up the singer. Me and Scotty might have had a bit of a uh, Englishness coming together, and we'd all sort, of, all sort of, sort of play on Jakob and try and get him to sing. So yeah, he, he was a really good guy. But yeah, his his goalkeeping, it wasn't quite, quite up there. I think he probably was in Scotty's way a little bit because he was sort of seen ahead of him in the pecking order somehow. Um, but yeah, no, he's a, he's a lovely bloke. For Smith, great servant to the club. Patient as well, because he came in and out of the team quite often. Seemed to really, really, really enjoy his time at Swindon. Yeah, Phil, he's um, he was sort of the, the complete opposite to Dave Lucas. Dave was quite a sort of um, uh, loud character, very confident. And Phil was a lot quieter. Still confident in his own ability, Phil, but he was, he was very quiet. So they were sort of chalk and cheese. But Phil was a, a very good goalkeeper, and like you say, very patient. And as a Swindon fan, I, I, I also grew up watching him. Um, he came in, I think, as number two to Petr Brezovan mm-hmm. at the time. And he was very patient then um, and got his opportunity. And, and he, was, um, he was a brilliant servant to the club. And on the training ground, he was fantastic. Um, great goalkeeper. Really, really quiet, but he was a, a great goalkeeper. And really good guy to me as well. I've um, had lots of dealings with him. Uh, we, when he went to Aldershot, I actually went and trained with him for a bit. Um, there, he sort of, we sort of shared lifts there. Um, but no, Phil was great goalkeeper and great guy as well. Sort of a, uh, an ongoing theme with the goalkeepers. They all, all seem to be really good guys. There's not many I've come across who have not really got along on with, but Phil's another one. He's a great, great gent. Under Decanio, he brought in 
a fellow Italian in uh, Mattia Lanzano. I think Simon Ferry mentioned that his English wasn't great. Um, his time at Swindon was quite short. He, I think he came in to be number one, but Phil Smith ousted him on that. And at the start of the Decanio era, you're the first, you're the backup goalkeeper, I think, to Phil. I think for Decanio's first game, you're on the bench. Yeah. Uh, what were your memories of Mattia? Uh, Matty, again, he was a really nice guy. Like I said, his uh, his English weren't great. Um, couldn't really get much much talk out of him. Um, but like Dominico, when you're training with both of them, um, they would try and help each other explain, and it just it just wouldn't help at all because they're both speaking double Dutch for all we knew. But he was, as a goalkeeper, I don't think he was quite ready for the English game coming across. He was still only pretty young. I think he was sort of 20, 21 um, coming in. Obviously, Phil had a lot more experience. Uh, and ended up, like you say, ousting him for the for the first team jersey. But no, I, I think it came apparent quite quick that he wasn't ready for for our first team. And I think Decanio tried to to get him out, um, whether it was offering him a deal to to get rid of his contract or or what. But he didn't seem to want to take it. He must have been on a good deal. So I think what had to happen was they had to try and oust him out by making him run every day. So at some point he wasn't allowed to come and do any goalkeeping with us, which is obviously difficult for all of us as goalkeepers in the in the union as such he wasn't allowed to come and train with us so whilst everyone was training goalkeepers were doing the goalkeeping work the outfield players were doing their work Matty had to just jog around the outside of the whole uh, training complex and he had to keep going the whole time just running running and running um, and it was very difficult very difficult to watch that was politics at the club he, he had to go and that was uh, a way of of getting him to leave uh, unfortunately, but he was, a, he was a good guy as well. We'll talk about Wes and Ty um, later on. Was there when you when you're in the first team setup? Do you have one eye on the youth as well? Because there's a tradition that the first year pro goalkeepers they can sometimes have their one year get released, the next one comes in gets released. Swindon were always quite uh, loyal to the goalkeepers that made it through. Mark Scott um, had a had a couple of years and a couple of the goalkeepers after that but do you sort of have one I know you all get on but it is competitive as hell this goalkeeper position isn't it yeah no um it, it is something you look at um for me personally I wasn't sort of looking over my shoulder worried about anyone mm. um there was actually a very good goalkeeper behind me I'm um, in the youth team I played in the youth team with Connor Thompson yeah. uh who played for um, Northern Ireland in the Victory Shield when he was 16 I don't know if he went on to make any other appearances after that um but Connor was a, a good lad and a good friend of mine as well. But I think I think when I got my contract, he opted to leave. Um, so we asked to cancel his scholarship. And he ended up going down to Torquay. Um, like I said earlier, when, when selecting youth teams, um, people look, if they've signed certain defenders, are they going to bring in uh, more defenders in the next year? Probably not. So I think Connor, uh, his, I'm guessing his family at the time, decided well, if, if he's been offered a contract, then what's the chance of you getting one next year? It might be better going elsewhere. Mm. So that might might have been the decision behind it. But no, I think you, you look around, you look in the youth teams and you look to see if you can help them, really. Mm. So obviously you've got that little bit more experience. Being a goalkeeper, you sort of tend to help each other out and you end up training together anyway. So no, I thought think um, there is a certain amount of looking into the youth teams, but at the same time, it's, it's a lot of support. Now Ferry to the byline. Demita! They have turned it around. Simon Ferry to the byline, and he had the presence of mind to pick out Rafael De Vita. Okay, so you 
you're famous within the Swindon fan base for for an incident. I would deem it as a as a great moment for you. Probably, I mean, you'll explain all in a moment. You'll probably say something on the lines of you would have preferred it to happen in a different way. You're a Swindon fan. You achieve something that hundreds of thousands of people have tried and failed to do, and that is get an appearance for Swindon Town Football Club. And it and it comes in bizarre fashion, but typical fashion for that of the Paolo Di Canio era. Um, it's at Preston North End. Uh, we go 2-0 down quite early on. And Di Canio decides that one, that one of one of the best goalkeepers in the lower leagues is no longer good enough to play against Preston North End. And you are called upon. And you play 69 plus injury time, 69, 70 minutes. That would do for me. i got to be honest. I mean, you have ambitions, but one minute on that pitch for Swindon would be amazing. So it's something that absolutely should be proud of because he had faith to bring you on. But tell me about your memories of those events. Well, let me, let me start, actually. Was there any other suggestion that Di Canio would do this to Wes at any point before this? Not particularly, no. Obviously, there's always a small chance with uh, Paolo that something's going to happen. But I don't think anyone could have ever second-guessed this or thought of this happening. Um, like I said, there's always, there's always something in the back of your mind, like, what's going to happen today? There's going to be something. Hmm. Um, I think it was played on a Sunday as well. So that was sort of strange as well, playing, playing then. Um, so it's always in your head that something's going to happen under the Di Canio era. But not that. You don't think that's going to happen at all. In the immediate minutes before that, were you asked to warm up or was it quick warm up, get on now? Or were you sit, were you standing, what, sitting there watching him going, Christ, I might get a game in a minute? <laughs> no, so obviously I was sat watching the game and there was we were 2-0 down. And up Deepdale, the subs bench is built up into the stand. So it's sort of overlooking the pitch, but you can't see... You can see the technical area, but if you're watching the game, you're sort of looking straight over it. So when when Sai said I look like I myself, um, <laughs> it was because I was completely shocked because I didn't hear a word the gaffer was saying. Because I was watching the game, looking straight over his head, and then the next thing I know, he's he's in my face saying, "Do you want to come on or not?" So I was I was surprised. I was like, "Yeah, yeah, all right." So I've um, obviously jumped up, gone and gone down the touchline, warming up, thinking he's not bringing me on. He's just going to hope Wes sees it and bucks up his ideas. So I'm jogging, jogging down to the touchline. And Paul Benson's at the corner flag. Um, he's on the bench as well, but he's, he's just stretching the corner flag. And I very rarely went to warm up in the first half. I used to go and warm up just before half-time, get ready for the uh, half-time kickabout. Um, he's going, what are you doing? I went, warming up. He went, why is that? Wes injured? I went, no, he's, he's bringing me on. So he went, Paul just like had a little chuckle. I was like, oh, fair enough, mate. Hopefully you get on. So I'm sort of doing the movements thinking that hey, he's not going to bring me on um, turn around to sort of start jogging back and he, he's waving me down and he just I got down to Paolo and he said you, you're going off so I've gone alright so I've stripped off got on the bench got uh, got all my gloves on I had my shin pads on ready and I'm I'm stood on the sideline Wes's number's gone and I'm thinking this isn't going to go well is it this isn't going to go well Wes coming off here and obviously he came off held my hand up for a little high five I don't know why because if I was in Wes's position, I wouldn't want to be high-fiving or congratulating anyone coming on. If Wes goes sort of straight past me, straight past the gaffer and down the touch line and the, the Powerade bottle's gone. Um, so, yeah, that's <laughs> sort of my the first couple of minutes of 
my reaction. He left you hanging? Yeah, he left me hanging. I think oh. he apologised. Obviously, there was a statement the next day, and uh, Wes apologised for it in his statement, but I said to him, mate, don't worry. It's, it's just what you see, isn't it? When you're coming off the bench, as a goalkeeper, you never really experience that, coming off the bench and high-fiving someone. So it's just sort of, it was just up there, and yeah, I'm sure there's a meme to be made out of it somewhere these days. <laughs> but do do goalkeepers on the bench really think like do they do they have any levels of focus, or are they just getting comfy, getting the uh, a blanket over their legs, and going, this is all right, isn't it? Or or or, <laughs> or do you, was that a lesson for you after because you were second choice throughout the season? Were you per, perennially waiting for the next the next moment? No, I think um, always ready, but you've got to be able to, if you're on the bench, you've got to be able to have a laugh and be relaxed because if you're that focused for the, the 90 minutes while you're on the bench, you're going to be drained when you come on. Um, so you've got to, I think you've got to be relaxed, but you've got to be involved in the game. You've got to be watching the game. But there is obviously in, in the non-league, which I'm involved in now, um, not been sat on the bench that much, but a lot of the lads have a cup of tea while they're sat on the bench. Um, but I don't think you can get away with that uh, um, professional level. But no, I think you've got to be engaged and, and ready for it. It'd be easy to have the blanket out, uh, the Arsene Wenger blanket, and uh, be sat cuddled up watching the game. But no, got to be ready, ready to go. <laughs> Away from, we'll, we'll talk about the pressing game in a bit more depth in a minute, but I have to ask, what do footballers talk about on the bench? When I was on the bench, there, there isn't a lot you talk about, with, especially with the canyon in front of him, because you're either being entertained by the game, watching the game, or you're watching him because he's smashing the dugout to pieces. <laughs> He's either uh, slapping about Fabrizio, the assistant manager, or he's kicking water bottles. So there's there's always something going on. You can't you haven't got time to think about anything else or talk about anything else. But no, I think there's if you can get away with talking about anything, you'll talk about anything. But and uh, under him, if you talk, if you turned round, you were smiling at the wrong time, you were laughing at the wrong time. Uh, you either weren't coming on or you weren't going to be involved again. So you had to be very careful when you're on the bench as well. Yeah, and of course you would have been in, on the bench when he smashed up Bournemouth's. Yeah, yeah I think I think the Cali got the blame for that, but I believe it was actually Dominico who did that. <laughs> um, so for once, um, the gaffer was innocent. But yeah, I think Dominico he he slapped it because uh, I think that was when David James was playing in goal for Bournemouth that day. I'm pretty sure. He yeah, was, Dominico. Yeah, yeah he was. 100 percent was that. Back to the Preston game, though. Trivia question. I've, I've started asking these trivia questions, and my guests always get a bit of a panic here. But my question to you is: Who was on the bench with you that day against Preston? You've named two of them. Um, so we've got obviously Sai, who threw me under the bus saying I shit myself. <laughs> he really did, um, didn't he? He really did. <laughs> Paul Benson, who I was chatting with, warming up. Yeah. And then, if memory serves me right, there's a. I remember there being a picture of me putting my gloves on coming off the bench, and I'm pretty sure. Wardy, Darren Ward's in that. Correct. So Darren Ward's on the bench. Um, I feel, I'm not sure if John Bostock started that day or if he was on the He was on the bench. bench. Came on at halftime. And, and one more, I think. Two more. Ah, oh, what, the one more. There's a def- Fede, Bas- Fede Bassone. Oh, you've been cheating, I reckon. <laughs> that- I'll give you the easiest clue ever. Salford. Oh, Adam Rooney. Yeah, there you go. Adam uh-huh. Rooney uh, was unused as well. So, what the foddering... Uh, I didn't. I promise you, I didn't cheat on that Fede yeah. Bassone one. I, I didn't. He was on the bench a few times, to be honest, wasn't he? So. Yeah. And um, I, I don't know, uh, this is Swindon Town. They did a 
thing the other day about players who played for Swindon and someone else, and there was a Barcelona one, mm. and he was the first player who popped into my head. So he's been in my head quite recently, so I promise I didn't cheat on that one. <laughs> the West Fodringham incident creates this issue, really, because his kicking of the bottle and his refusal of the high five and it's created kind of a hostile atmosphere for you because if I'm supporting Preston then I'm going to give this teenage rookie hell I'm going to yeah. I'm going to be in his ear I'm going to be doing everything I can to shake him up was that was that the experience that you had so, so when I first went on, I ran on towards our own fans. And I think we had a pretty good following that day, like we did yeah. most times that season. And it wasn't a big applause, because I think they were a little <laughs> bit disgruntled um, by Wes coming off. But it was, it was enough for me, and it, it settled me in. But no, like you said, there, there was a perfect opportunity for Preston fans to, to stick it to me. But I can't really remember getting too much stick. If I'm honest, I get more stick these days playing in front of a few hundred hundred people where you can hear individual people saying stuff and really having a go at you than, than that day. I sort of blocked it all out. The only thing that I remember them singing is every time the ball, sort of I had the ball or it was a goal kick, I went to get the ball is subbed in a minute, you're getting <laughs> subbed in a minute. So, um, but that was obviously a, a little bit of life hearted banter but um, the, no, I don't think they really um, stuck it to me that bad. I reckon Darren Ward would have went in goal. If, uh, if if he took you <laughs> off, that's what I, I would. I guess that's who. I, maybe Flint. He's tall. So. <laughs> it's twenty minutes on the pitch before uh, Preston do get the third through Stuart Bevan and John Welsh seals it um, much later on. You can see two, which as the advertiser they praise you uh, for your performance because it's not easy. You're on the pitch, you're on the field of play when, when Swindon get that consolation. Do you look back on it wishing it was in different circumstances or are you like, hell no, I got, I, I got those minutes? I think I do at the same time. Not many people get that their debut that well publicised <laughs> because it was all over Sky Sports News, obviously. I, I still hear Jim White ringing in my ear saying, 18-year-old uh, rookie goalkeeper. I just hear that. Yeah, you don't you don't really get that much for your debut, and so that was in that aspect it was it was nice because I had hundreds and hundreds of messages from friends, people who I hadn't spoke to for years, I'm um, saying I oh, just seen this, just in this, and even now like there's YouTube videos of compla- compilations yeah. of things happening, and it pops up, and someone will tag me in it, and I'll, I'll have a little chuckle about it. I'm sure I'm not sure Wes probably reacts the same way. Um, he's probably a bit fed up about it, but but no, it was my it was my appearance, it was my one only appearance, and. If I could have had it in better circumstances and could have won, 100%, I'd have been much happier. But at the end of the day, I got to play in a great stadium at Deepdale in front of, I think it was 10,000-odd people. So it was a great opportunity and no better place, really, than than to, to make my debut for the club I supported. You got an apology via a statement through Wes. What was De Canio's re- um, conversations with you after that? So, obviously, after the game, I was down the far end, um, away from the Swindon fans, and my, my dad was obviously there that day. He travelled home and away all to all games that season, and that day, he almost didn't come. Um, my cousin messaged him in the morning, saying, oh, fancy going today. He wasn't really um, too keen. He said, oh, go on then. So, it's sort of last minute. Um, so he's obviously glad he went that day. So I thought I've got to go over and see if I can spot spot my dad in the stands. Because even if I was on my bench, I'd always give him a wave um, as we left. But I thought I'd go and clap the fans 
And I think sort of all the other lads were quite keen to get off the pitch. They went over, clapped and walked off. I went right over, clapped. I remember Decano, he put his arm around me at the end, walking back. And he just said, well done, mate, well done. And then obviously when we got into the changing rooms, he was a little bit more animated um, about the whole thing. Um, but no, there wasn't really any other conversation than that. Um, it was on the on the bus, a long journey back um, and get ready for the next game, which was, which I knew already that my, my thoughts were, the next game is Oxford away in the uh, JPT. Yeah. And I'm thinking, if this doesn't get sorted out, I'm I'm playing. I'm playing unless you can get a loan in, someone I'm experienced in, in the next day or yeah. so. Um, I'm playing and I was, I was double buzzing. I was buzzing on maybe Davey and I'm thinking... I'm going. I'm going to the Kasam, and we're we're going to do them. Kasam, and it's going to be the best, what well, the best day of my life. Yeah, if it was five subs, Paolo would sacrifice the goalkeeper. So instead, I was a little bit disappointed. Yeah. I knew I wasn't going to start ahead of Wes um, once they once they packed it up, um, sorted it out. So I sort of I was like sat sat behind the dugout, and I was like, I'm not sitting here, no. here with the Oxford fans. <laughs> so I sort of walked round round by the fence end, um, told the steward, I asked steward if he'd let me in let me in I went and uh, stood with my uh, friends and family in the stand and watched the game from there which was frustrating that was the Alfie Potter last minute one wasn't it yeah yeah very disappointed creative with our ways of losing against Oxford over the last 10 years or so we've pretty much lost in every scenario (laughs) we've been the best team we've been the worst team we've won in we've lost in the last minute we've taken the lead and lost well we've lost we've lost against 10 men there's not many other scenarios we can lose to Oxford. But yeah, never mind. Don't, don't you worry. Living in Oxfordshire, I um, I've heard them all. Uh, seven in a row oh, and all that. It's, when it's not really it's, seven in a row, but we're not going to argue. We're not going to fight about it. We're just going to wait patiently yeah, but, until we uh, turn the tables again. Exactly right. Usually, when young pros get their debut, you get congratulated by teammates and things like that. But given the hostility of that changing room, was anyone able to just go, yeah, fair play, mate, and, and things like that? Did they look after you? Immediately in the change rooms, obviously, it was quite a somber place. It was quiet. Yeah. A lot of people were down. But um, in the showers of all places at the end, Cy Ferry, I was in the showers with Cy Ferry and Tommy Miller. And they both um, both coach said, mate, you've done, you done well today. It's difficult circumstances. And from players like that when you've got Cy Ferry who's been who's at the club for a few years then um, sort of integral big player and then Tommy Miller who's done who's done loads in the game to say that to you sort of it did sort of make me feel better and and it was uh, nice and warm and then on the coach back obviously the lads are like our beds make sure you get your your shirt sorted make sure you get that shirt off Roger and you, you keep that uh, and obviously I did and but no, so it was very quiet. There was no there was no press or anything. No one was allowed to talk to any press. There's nothing like that. It's, there was no no interviews or anything sort of so yeah it was it was a strange one there was no talking about it really it was sort of sweeped under the carpet quite promptly now Richie finds Ferry beaten away by Colgan oh it's loose it's Ferry again and that has surely sealed Twindon's place in round two Throughout that season, 2012-2013, you have essentially a front row seat to some really wonderful moments in Swindon's recent history. There's the Brighton and Stoke uh, League Cup games, Aston Villa won of course as well. There's big wins over Tramier and Portsmouth and there was that Tramier away game as well. And of course the playoff semi-finals um, against Brentford. 
it was it was incredible really like I, said, I was uh, I was on the front row I had the best seat in the house and being a Swindon fan it was it was simply simply quality so yeah those those were massive games and a lot of the time we got the results and we were on a roll and I I really thought we were going to go go all the way but being there it just sort of lit that passion inside me it just felt like I was on the terraces really mm. it was it was incredible and the the lads we had we had an unbelievable squad if you just think about that bench you asked me about at Preston. Um, yeah. that bench would probably <laughs> get into our first team now for quite easily yeah. um, there's some good players um, in fact Paul Benson I've, he plays for Bedford Town We've, we're playing them this weekend so I'll, uh, I'll see Benno and remind him of that <laughs> we have this guy called Paolo Di Canio as manager and it's he's a character that many of the listeners of this podcast they, they can't get enough of listening to what he was like and what the environment was like around him. What were your experiences generally of Paolo? He's exactly like you see him. Mm. He's exactly like you see him. There's no difference. It's no act. Um, but yeah, it's he's he's incredible. When it first got announced, I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is going to be incredible. It's going to be sort of uh, unbelievable training. It's just going to be like five sides. We're just going to have fun. It's going to be really laugh. And then obviously you see it. He comes in and you think, wow. This is sort of proper regimental, everything down to a T, the attention to detail, um, the passion is, is everything, every outburst. Um, but I think those outbursts are, are part of his genius. Or if you look at look at players who are unbelievable, like people like Paul Gascoigne, sort of they've got they've got that little screw which is a little bit loose, which makes them a bit a bit doolabby. And I think that, that was his brilliance really. Um, there's so many times sort of obviously let his passion um, get beyond him and he would be animated in the dugout and he'd be even more animated in the changing room um, big silver metal skips in the middle of the room which he'd kick throw um, in those change rooms of those times you had to be careful because there was things flying around all the time obviously you hear about Sir Alex Ferguson's hair dry treatment but Paolo was definitely up there I think he'd probably give him a run from his money but yeah what a, what a great bloke and I, I think there was a time where people were probably at the start where it was a little bit um, difficult mm. I think people probably thought oh wow what what have we done here we've just given him a job and he sort of it's, it's all gone wrong but there was method to his madness yes I think he spent a lot of money and got in a lot of players but for me as a, as a Swindon Town fan um, in recent years, it's been 100% the best best time to be a Swindon fan. Like I said, the following on the road, the fans who came and watched, the atmosphere at the county ground. I mean, I've not been able to get to the county ground much over the last few years, but it's been pretty pretty <laughs> dire since I've been there. And I'm thinking this is this is not what I remember. No, um, he he did get the club going. He brought everyone together. So yeah, for, sort of as a talisman, he he brought that club up and dragged it up and made it unbelievable because we were the Sky Sports News, BBC Sport, everything you could go on there and there'd always be a story about Swindon. There's all, always be something happening. Um, people were always interested in what was going on. Um, and it was normally all for, the, all for the right reasons that the team were playing well. We'd beaten another championships team on the cup run, close to winning the league, close to the playoffs, close to getting promoted. It was, it was just such a great time to be at the club with such an unbelievable personal go-down in the history books at Swindon Town. Your direct rival for a place in goal is, and that's not my opinion, he was voted the best goalie in the division that season in West Fodringham. Looking back, is that proven detrimental to you or was it just great being working alongside Wes in the time that you had? Uh, work, yeah, working alongside Wes was unbelievable because I, I, I was young, but he was young as well. Um, but obviously, he had a lot more experience coming from higher up, and he was—we were very similar as goalkeepers in build, in style. So for me, it was sort of 
I'm going to watch everything this guy does and I'm going to do that and try and do a little bit more to become as good as him, if not better than him. That was probably maybe my, my falling point because I always thought with Wes, he was, I was like, I, I was in awe of him. I thought, what, he's the goalkeeper, he's, he's the man. I probably should have backed myself a little bit more. I might have been able to put him on a bit more pressure, believing in myself. But no, he was he was a great person to work beside because, like I said, there was a lot of similarities between us, and he was just someone who I could really sort of watch and learn from. Mm-hmm. But him, him undoubtedly, he was the, that those seasons he was the the best keeper in the league. And it's a shame to see him now sat at Rangers and, and not playing. Yeah. Hopefully, he'll get back in the uh, the team soon, or we see him back playing down south in the Championship or Premiership. I think you're unfortunate because in the cups. We draw Oxford, as you mentioned, in the Football League trophy. In the League Cup, we have a run that includes big teams straight away. And our only FA Cup game is the loss against Macclesfield and Aidan Flint gets sent off. And that's the game where Aaron Oakley probably should have got his debut as well. But it, do you wish that Paolo, because he was your manager who, who had you on the bench the majority of the time, do you wish that he, he just gave you a chance in the cuts or any other areas during the season? Yeah, absolutely. That that Macclesfield game sticks out in um, in my head massively because I never you never sort of think, yeah, I'm I'm gonna play that day, but that day sort of working up to it, I thought this might be my opportunity, this might be my chance that he's gonna he's gonna throw me in, he's gonna give me an opportunity to go and go and show what I can do. Obviously it wasn't to happen as I was walking into the ground, sort of had people wishing me luck. I think everyone, everyone but Paolo thought I was going to play, mm-hmm. but no, it, it didn't happen. And obviously, it was a, it was a bad defeat losing to a lower league team. You don't know if things would have been different, um, but it'd have been nice to be given that opportunity um, that time. But there was also sort of all the other opportunities. Obviously, like you say, against higher teams, it's very difficult. But I think one thing about Paolo, which you, you've got to respect, is I think every game he he managed, he'd always play his strongest squad. Uh, the strongest team he had available to him, unless there was an injury, um, he wouldn't really change it too much. He'd change personnel if he thought that it suited the game better, um, but he always wanted to win every game, so that meant the strongest possible eleven went out. Um, so you got to respect that at the same time. But there was another opportunity um, later on in that season. I think it was we played Scunthorpe, almost the last game of the season before the playoffs. Yeah. Um, and the Kevin McDonald, Kevin came up to me and said, oh, we're, we're looking to play you in that game. I can't remember if it was Wes had a certain amount of yellow cards and he was he could have been suspended for the playoffs. So he didn't want to risk it. But at the same time, I think we were sort of petering out towards the end of the season. And I don't know if we could have slipped outside the playoffs. But I think it was one where he said, oh, I want to give you the chance. I'm going to give you the chance. And then it turned out that he couldn't because of circumstances. We needed to stay in the playoffs. We need to stay as high as possible in the playoffs. Mm. So it was close. Another close chance, but not to be. I think Decanio he learned his lessons from the previous season because he chopped and changed his goalkeeper um, a good few times, didn't he? But like you said, it wasn't to be. Were there any other moments that stuck out for you during the, that time? There's, there's obviously loads, loads of um, scenarios. Um, one that one that sticks out from Paolo's era was a lot of the time Sunday mornings and there's a lot talked of no days off and things like that which for me wasn't a problem because obviously you want to have time off but at the end of the day you're you're training for two hours a day and you're getting a free lunch and then you're free all afternoon so it's not that big a deal to be honest mm. but yeah there was a lot of times where we were in on Sunday mornings um if you would have if you'd have been in the start at 11 the day before, you just come in, you watch the video clips that they put together on the Saturday night from the game. You watch what went well, what didn't go well. And then they went out for a jog, a stretch. That was them done. But if you were the player who didn't play, you weren't in the squad or you're on the bench, 
you'd watch those same clips, you'd sit through them, watching everyone else play. And then after that, you'd go out and you'd do um, five-a-sides, which were tough, tough five-a-sides, where it'd be real hard work. And often Paolo would play in those five-a-sides as well. And if he was on your team, you knew, you knew no matter how well you did, you were going to get grilling from him because that bloke could still play and he was unbelievable. He would, if he was on my team and I was in goal, I'd have the ball in my hands and he'd just come and stand a yard away from me. And instead of me rolling the ball out to him, he'd just say, just drop it. And he'd come and get it and he'd just try and take everyone on or he'd get the ball, he'd pass it and get the ball back and then get a shot away. He was, he had that passion that he still wanted to play and he, he probably could still play, to be fair. Um, so yeah, there was, a, there was a lot of times hard work. But again, when uh, you're playing with Paolo Di on a Sunday morning, you think, is it that bad? No, <laughs> probably not. Uh, um, and then there was, uh, at the end of the season, I get as well, when we played with him, we had, there was three, I think we were in for three days after the season finished, um, after we after we won League Two. And the lads were a bit miffed as why well. after that game, he's not just gone, right, boys, you're done, go and enjoy your holidays, um, see you back in uh, in pre-season. But he, uh, he arranged to have a, a tournament, so he set up all the pitches, and we got into the teams and we just had a big tournament. It was teams were picked. And uh, on my team, I can't remember who we had, but the captain picked two co- two goalkeepers so that the other team couldn't have a goalkeeper. But obviously, it let us down out pitch. But I think because they didn't have a goalkeeper, I think Paolo went in goal for them, for their team. And the uh, the deal was the, the team who finished bottom of the tournament were paying for the end of season team meal for Telenos, which I think Paolo is quite famous for, for liking. I think they named a pizza after him in the end there. Um, but no, there was there was a lot of fun in training to be added as well, times like that. But as well with the videos that we'd watch on a Sunday morning, we went through some TVs in there because he used to he used to start off tapping the screen, pointing, and it'd get harder and harder. And I remember one day at the training ground, he just absolutely whacked it and it fell off the wall. Um, and that was the end of the video session. Um, but no, he was a, he was a great bloke and a great time to be part of the club, like I said. So what were your memories of... of- De Canio's quite bizarre exit from the club. It was just disappointment, really. Like mm. I can't really remember how it came about. I think it was just. I think Matty Ritchie got sold, and that was that was a massive, massive part because I think he was promised certain things. Following that, he didn't want Matty to go because obviously Matty was pivotal to us, mm. and he didn't get what he was promised. And I think that was it. He thought, no, I'm gone. Um, and it was obviously disappointing for us because we were going well. Mm-hmm. And if anyone was going to get us up it was going to be him but yeah it just sort of came and gone it sort of came as a flash he was just gone I remember being on the way up to Tranmere with Fabrizio in charge and it was just a real strange feeling on the bus without him because obviously he had had such a great presence but it was just so strange travelling up there Um, and on the way up we actually almost there and almost to the hotel to have our pre-match and we found out that the pre-match had been cancelled there wasn't a pre-match meal before Tranmere um, which was obviously a, a big game first game without him and there was no pre-match meal so we were like well, well what are we going to do mm-hmm. so we had to uh, stop at the service station and um, all the lads were having sort of granola yogurts from Costa um, having paninis um, which was an ideal um, pre-match meal for us not what we were used to but obviously it didn't make too much of a difference because we went on to win the game mm-hmm. I think was it 3-1 yeah. Gary Roberts scored an unbelievable oh, goal crazy. from the halfway line just inside the half so so no, it was uh, it was very strange him leaving and disappointing. But then it was sort of we're up here, we're up there. We've got a hell of a chance to to go and do something. Just need sort of a man at the helm to go and do it. These weeks make me feel just as sad as when we lost to Brighton in the uh, in the playoffs because this is the moment where 
we were frankly dead certs to go up to where it all started to unravel. Uh, I think Simon said that some of your teammates that day on the way back were saying to Tommy Miller and Darren Ward about you know the the job um, that was coming up. Did, was did nobody go to Picaretta and go? Oh, I'll stick around for the rest of the season, or did they know that they he, they were blind followers of of Decanio? Yeah, I think I think it was pretty clear that they did that for the lads, Fabrizio, Claudio, Dominico. They did that to the lads. They were there to to help us out. They didn't want to throw us under the bus. Um, but realistically, their loyalties lied with um, Decanio, so they were they were sticking with him. And if he wasn't around, they weren't around either. So yeah, so I think um, Tommy and Wardy taking over was was the sort of short-term good option but long-term obviously it's not ideal because they were they were pivotal parts of how we were playing and they were they were playing and it's not easy to manage mm. and play at the same time um so we did need did need that person on the sidelines for guidance yeah after miller and ward had their short uh, caretaker tenure swindon recruit kevin mcdonald and kevin mcdonald although you know his reputation at the moment isn't that strong. He came in with a hugely popular reputation, especially for developing young players. Were you really hopeful that this might be a re- a big turning point for you as well? Yeah, absolutely. When um when it was announced that Kevin McDonald was coming in, sort of when you're looking up, see what where he's been, what he's done, and find out more about him, and you realise how much into youth he is, and and how much opportunity he gives, and it was sort of obviously a, a big boost. It was thinking, well. We've got we've got a chance here. We've got a really strong team, and we've got some good young players coming through. Who he's going to give an opportunity to and be be patient with. And I think he, he really was, to be honest, because with the youth team, even that season, he uh, he brought through um, a few lads at the end of the season from the youth team. Obviously, it didn't end out too well with um, Kevin McDonald. It was disappointing that he left because training with him was was brilliant. It was it was hard work, but it was different to the Canio. It was less tactical and shaped work. It was more sort of technical, playing games, game related things like that. It was. It was a lot of match play. And it was it was really enjoyable with him, and obviously he had brought Mark Cooper in as well, who was really good as the assistant at that time. Mm. And I think they were they were on track. They they did everything right. I don't think they could have done much more to sort of point us in the right direction for the end of the season. But it just it just didn't happen. I think it was such a big loss losing that character of Decanio. It was hard to sort of pull ourselves back up. Uh, lose to Canio and Richie, it's going to make a dent regardless. Yeah. It was a shock to us when he left because there was the Forest Green friendly and then the announcement that he was gone. Was it a surprise to you guys? Without, I'm sure you can't go into major detail about it because not many people are really that aware of what happened, myself included. Was it, was it a surprise to the squad as well? Yeah, I think it was at the time because obviously it was sort of like one day he was there and then a few players were coming in, a few players were leaving. There was sort of a lot going on. One day he was there and there was sort of no talk of anything going on. And then he was just was just gone. Yeah. So it was really, really strange, and not many people know what go on went on. Uh, and to be honest, I'm not really sure myself. Um, but looking in from sort of now and what's gone on since, probably has it a guess of sort of things going on from up above, yeah. um, decisions being made. And to be honest, it, it gave me a bit more respect for for Kevin that he didn't want his managerial job to be sort of decisions made out of his hands. If he was going to do it, it was going to be his decisions. Whether that was the case, I'm not sure. Um, I'm just guessing there. But I think that probably is what happened and you can't argue with that really. What's it like being a Swindon fan and being employed when there's turmoil at the club? So you were there during the... uh during the transition between Andrew Black's uh, reign and Jed McCrory's reign. Yeah, it's not sort of that sort of level, that's all that business level. It wasn't sort of too much to do with us. Mm. I can't really remember much coming on. I remember Jed walking in 
um, around the changing rooms one day. But other than that, there wasn't it's sort of not something that concerns everyone as long as the club's stable. Sure. And that's sort of your main concern. Now, the year below you, um, Aaron Oakley, as he uh, mentioned in the first episode of the Low Strangers podcast, there was the Bond Squad. Uh, the players that yeah. that were on the periphery uh, from the youth team to the seniors, were you a part of that? Uh, yeah, so the bomb squad came about during Mark Cooper's reign. Mm-hmm. This was this was when it came apparent that us lads in the bomb squad were no longer needed, wanted at the club. So it, it, it's just one of those things that happens. Nothing against Coops or anything like that. Cause he, he was brilliant when he was assistant manager. Um, he was really good to us lads and then obviously the job of manager he's got to make decisions and do things um, but I just think at that time he had his sort of starting 11 his squad we'd be involved in the warm-ups the sort of first few drills I'd be working with the goalkeepers and then it'd maybe go over to shape or something he'd have his players he'd want to work with and then there were sort of us lads just brushed to the side and there wasn't sort of right you lads are going to do this while we do this it was just you lads are over there uh, and that's you there so sort of when that when that started to happen it was sort of apparent that the, the time at the club was coming to an end, yeah. um, which was difficult, difficult to take. But it's one of those things that happen in football. It's not the first time it will happen at a club, uh, and it's not the last. What does someone like Wes say to you in that? It's just, it's just say, keep keep trying. Yeah, it's disappointing, obviously, but at the same time, you're you're a professional as such, so you've got to you got to look after yourself. You've got to do what's right. So we'd we'd go off, set up our own little thing, and start giving it a go, which is probably the only thing you can do. You can stand and salt, wave your arms about, feel sorry for yourself, um, but it's not going to help you. It's not going to help anyone else. So we just went away, set our own, our own little drills and went into that until until we were needed again or until the session was over. So yeah, you, as a professional, you've got to look after yourself, look after your body. And obviously it's your craft, so you've got to try and improve yourself. I think we we're trying to show that, okay, if he doesn't want us now, we're going to go away and we're going to be ready for when, if he does need us or does want us. Um, so yeah, it is, it is difficult, but it's one of those things you've got to deal with. During Mark Cooper's time you drift away uh, from the first team set as you've already mentioned you have a couple of loans to uh, Worcester and Macquarie's former team Banbury as well who would later join do you feel that you you could have got loan spells higher up the pyramid yeah it was um it was disappointing but um how the Banbury one came about was I literally just finished training walked out the changing rooms and had a call and it was um, from a, uh, one of the lads in the office at the club saying, you're going out on loan. And I thought, oh, it's brilliant. I'm going to go out and get some games. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Where, where to? He said, Banbury United. And I was like, my sort of heart dropped a little bit. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit disappointed. I was thinking, oh, we went we went there in pre-season. It wasn't the nicest of places. It was a bit run down. Willow found a hammer on the pitch <laughs> about 20 minutes in. So it was, yeah, it was a bit like, oh, okay. But it was sort of at the same time, I was like, well, I haven't played football in, in sort of competitive football in a long time, so I, I need to go and play. So at the same time, it's like, right, I've got an opportunity, uh, I'm going to take it. To be fair, when I went and played there, uh, it went really well. It is a brilliant little club. So I think it's fan-owned um, these days. But it is a good little club, and it was a good good time for me because it got me back playing. Because mm. over that time at Swindon, I didn't really play that many games. Because I was in when I was in the first team um, with the Canio, he wouldn't let me play in any reserve team games. I wasn't allowed to play in any games at all, mainly because um, the structure of the league and the cup games were in the cups quite a lot. Um, so it wasn't time for me to play. And when there was, he didn't want to risk a goalkeeper getting injured and then not having any goalkeeper and having to get one in on loan. Um, so I'd always ask if oh, there's a there's a resi game Wednesday, can I play? And it would always be, no, no, you, you need to train, you need to train. 
So going out on loan was sort of ideal because I hadn't played. Being a professional footballer, it sounds mad, but I hadn't played many matches. Mm. Um, so I needed to go out. And I, I did well at Banbury, played a, a good few games. I was there for a good few months and then came back. I got ill just before Christmas, um, so I couldn't go back to Banbury um, straight away. So I had to have an operation. And then following that, a few months later, um, the Worcester opportunity came about, which they were Conference North at the time, which was, was uh, yeah, a move that I was a lot more sort of grateful for. So I, but I just proved myself in the league below. And then I've been given that opportunity. I thought, brilliant. I had a, a month's loan there at the end of the season. They were struggling. So I thought, oh, there, I'm going to get a lot to do. So it's going to be a real good opportunity. So I went there again, did well, took my opportunity. But then coming back to Swindon, it just wasn't sort of nothing was going to happen. But those loan spells set me up for, in good stead um, to go out and play in non-league in the future. Because if I wouldn't have, it had been going into complete unknown when I sort of left Swindon and, and nothing came about trials. and that. Your place at Swindon has really ended by the arrival of Ty Belford from Liverpool. Tremendously popular with many of the fans, despite he didn't really play that much, but people liked uh, what they saw, especially in the earlier games. But, I mean, is it hard to just not look beyond what well, this is the end for me now? This, you know, Welcome to the club, you're a good guy, but I'm done. Yeah, so when Ty came in, it was it was really difficult because um, I hadn't been told anything as far as I was aware. I was sort of going to be challenging for the, the first team spot again I was the number two goalkeeper yeah. um, nothing had been said and then one day as a Swindon fan and player you're always looking at the advertiser website seeing what's going on um, seeing what's uh, what's happening and it came in that he was signing so it was a bit of a it was a bit of a kick in the teeth for me there because I thought well obviously if they're not signing this lad from Liverpool to come in and be third choice um, so I've got a task on my hands and I think he was always sort of favoured above me which they might have fancied him more of as a player which is fair enough um, one of those things that you've got to hold your hands up and say. But Ty was a Ty was a larger and larger than life character, um, really good guy. Mm. Got on with everyone, um, so it was really hard to um, to not get on with him, even though he's sort of come in and taken your place. But again, it's sort of one of those things in life. You just have to get on with it and uh, get on well with him. And he is a really good guy, and I, I talk to him occasionally. Richard, he's hit it and it's deflected, and Swindon Town have the lead. So you're released by Mark Cooper at the end of the 2013-14 season. It doesn't sound like it would have been a huge surprise. Um, what is that experience like? Because obviously you're probably expecting it, but it's still going to hurt. And also, what were your opportunities immediately after that release? So yeah, obviously known for a while, being in the bomb squad and things like that. You, you know, you just when your contract's up, you think. Yeah, it's not it's not going to happen. So it was sort of similar to the youth team setup when you're waiting for your pro. We had the same thing. We had meetings. I remember Sai had meetings. Other players had meetings. All pretty much on the same wavelength. That it was going to be a big turnaround at the club. Those lads were obviously um, leaving because of money reasons. I think anyway, uh, they just didn't want to pay the wages anymore because they let go some really good players. But for me personally, he's called me in and just said, "Yeah, we we can't afford to have three goalkeepers anymore." And for me, that was complete rubbish because I, I was on absolute peanuts. Um, so it was nothing to do with that. I'd, I'd rather he just said to me, "Listen, we don't don't fancy you as a goalkeeper. We're gonna let we're gonna let you go." Um, but to be fair to, to Mark, he said, listen, there's there's always clubs looking for goalkeepers. If there's anything I can do, let me know. And following following from there, I, I went on to have trials at a few places. So I didn't have opportunities. Uh, I went to Walsall. I went to Cheltenham, Aldershot, Brackley Town, and then sort of filled my way into, into the non-league. But, but yeah, it was it's difficult in those trials because going in on trial places, it, it is very, very hard work. So you're going into the unknown, don't know what's going on. You don't really know if they're fancying you, if they want, if they're actually looking at you or if they're just letting you come in. Um, so at Cheltenham, 
um, Walsall. Again, I got told the same story. We haven't really got a budget. So for me, that was sort of, well, if you haven't got a budget to bring anyone in, why are you getting mm. me on trial? Sort of waste of everyone's time. And then when I went to Aldershot, that's when Phil Phil Smith signed for Aldershot as well. And I had the opportunity to go there on trial. And Phil rang me and said, oh, I'll give you a lift in. And I turned up on the first day of pre-season with Phil. And there was eight goalkeepers there, Ugh. eight goalkeepers. Phil was the only one signed on and there were seven of us on trial. <laughs> so I was like, wow. And there wasn't a goalkeeper coach either. So it was like, what's going on here? Yeah. So we uh, we obviously all on trial. And after a week or so, there's there's still seven goalkeepers there. No goalkeeping coach. And I'm thinking, this this is, I'm not going to waste my time here, waiting around here, see what happens. So I went and spoke to him. It was like, um, what, is there any chance you're making a decision on on who you want to keep, who you want to go? Because obviously, obviously, I'd love to stay, but there was there was other opportunities waiting for me as well. So at the end, I did say they said, well, listen, we don't know when we're going to make a decision. So at that time, I had a, I had a um, Stonewall offer from Brackley Town in the Conference North, who I played against when I was at Worcester, and I had a stormer against them. And their manager said, listen, come and sign for us, come and play a game pre-season, and I'll offer you something. So I went to play for Brackley pre-season, played a game. I didn't touch the ball, and he said, oh, listen, I've only I've only seen you play once before today and you haven't touched the ball today I uh, said so just play play against uh, Corby Town for me next game in pre-season and then uh, we'll talk after anyway play the game played well and he's gone yep yep 100% I'm going to offer you something I'll, uh, I'll email you the details through so I thought brilliant good level I can go go and play at and uh, hopefully build build my career from there uh, the next next day he gives me a call and says oh, listen mate I'm going to have to uh, backtrack on my offer I've been offered a, a lad from Northampton on loan for the season for free. So I thought, oh, brilliant. <laughs> That's sold, sold me up the river there. Um, so that was sort of the end of it. And uh, after that, that was when um, sort of driving back from there and I, I rang my dad and said, listen, dad, you're going to you're gonna have to see if you can get me some work for next week. Um, see if I'm coming to work with you, get some hours. Um, Got to get the bills paid. Mm. Um, so I went into work with my dad and that was then sort of, I went on and thought, I need to go sort of forge a career elsewhere. So I've, um, I went on to, to get a coaching job working in primary schools where I'm teaching PE, um, where I'm coaching different sports, football, basketball, tag rugby, uh, gymnastics, all these different things in PE and doing after school clubs, which I absolutely love now. And then obviously doing the uh, doing my uh, football part time with uh, Dickot Town, which is something I, I still enjoy massively. Obviously, you'd love to be still involved professionally, but if you love something, you, you still do it in your part-time as well. It sounds like that first summer, you were like that. Some people put themselves through the mill constantly in that hope for a contract or an opportunity. But it sounds like maybe your love for the game or your tolerance for the game just wasn't as strong as it needed to be to try and push yeah. on. Would that be fair? I think. I think, yeah, I think it was just that I've been I've been to three or four clubs on trial, good clubs like I say, Walsall, Cheltenham, Oldshot, good good clubs, and it just it just wasn't happening. There was there was no movement there. I saw that as that's my opportunity. Unfortunately, nothing's come of it. And I thought to myself, those places as well. I was going there to be as, as number twos as well. Uh, Brackley was where I was going to play as number one. Um, it didn't happen. So I thought, uh, if I'm not going to get it this way, I'm going to have to do it the hard way and go and play um, go and play proper non-league football get a job alongside it and, and see what happens from there mm. and um, unfortunately nothing nothing has happened to get back into the professional game but that's, that's part of life obviously sometimes you get that chance sometimes you don't uh, it's one of those things what about and you're absolutely right but what about higher up in the non-league pyramid because the higher you go so if you get to I mean National League is essentially pro but um, National League South where teams like Chippenham and Bath play 
the environment is still like you guys have to work and it, it yeah. becomes very much you've got lots of them are like personal trainers and things like that so they can move their schedule around to accommodate football is that why you've been so loyal to Didcot because you've been at Didcot for a long time for a non-league footballer you've been there a good four or five seasons was that is that about right yeah yeah absolutely yeah. I've been there for a good while now and um yeah, the thing is, when you're higher up the pyramid, obviously at the moment at Didcot, it's sort of regionalised. So we're in the um, we're in the central uh, Evo Stick Central League. So we're sort of all around sort of this side of London. Yeah, this side of London and up towards Peterborough. Um, and there's some teams in Birmingham. Whereas last season we were in the Southwest League, which is more Bristol, and then down to Biddeford and places like that. Um, so it's more regionalised at this level. Um, but as you go higher, obviously getting into the conference south it's all, all across the south north obviously even more and then conference it's even spread out even higher and further so it's it's a lot of commitment and obviously you've got to balance it with work as well mm-hmm. um so if you've got a job that is flexible it does help and then it, then it comes to a point whether you're going to be earning enough money from football to, to be able to not work as much or if you're work you're running more at work and you can sacrifice playing lower down at football mm-hmm. um, so it's finding that balance in the non-league obviously you want to play as high as you can um, but at the same time, um, you've got to have that career as well. It's Gladwell! Oh, it's fluid! End of last year, 2018, you were selected to play for a Football Association representative 11 on a goodwill trip to the Falkland Islands. Um, a hell of an achievement for that level of football. There, there are a lot of goalkeepers down that end of the pyramid. So to be selected must be a real boost to the quality or standard of goalkeeper that you still are. Um, it was it was an incredible experience to be to be honest. How it came about was was baffling. I just finished work and I had a text from my, men, my mate saying, um, "Have you heard the news?" And I was like, "No, what news?" And he, he rang me up and said, "We're in an England squad." And I went, what are you talking about in an England squad? I mean, we're playing, he was playing at Sirens and I was playing at Dick. I, was like, I don't know what England squad we can be anywhere near. And he said, a C team. I went, oh, okay, fair enough. He went, they're going to the Falkland Islands. So I was like, oh, okay. So it, it was baffling to begin with that something like that was even even happening. But but no, like I say, it's a great experience going across there. It's it's all the way around on sort of near Antarctica. It's sort of, it's close to Argentina, but it's it's freezing there. It took us 16 hours to get there, 10 hours to Cape Verde, and I think six hours from then onwards. Yeah, it's, it's a real long way. And when we got there, it's like there's a population of 3,000 and there's about 2,500 troops there as well. So there's about 5,000 people who live on this island. But it's a real, real strange place. When we landed, we sort of landed and there's nothing around, absolutely nothing. It's just fields and fields. There's no trees there because it's so windy. It's, it's just mad. And that experience was unbelievable. There's one football pitch on the island and that football pitch is used by the school and, and the national team as well uh, and the army. So um, it was it was a great experience going across there. And it was on um, Remembrance Sunday as well that we were there. Um, so we obviously thought we were going across there. Yeah, we're non-league footballers. We're going across there. We thought we we're going across to play a few games. So we were excited for the games um, where we played against the Falklands on the Saturday and the, uh, the army, armed forces, sorry, on the Sunday. So two games in two days for a squad of 16 was, was quite a moving feat as well. But yeah, it was more about the Remembrance Sunday really and it really hit us when we were there because we were part of the parade, um, the laying of the reefs and all the troops there. It was, it was quite a humbling experience mm-hmm. to be across there. And all the people of the Falklands, they, they feel English and obviously they are, they are classed as English and they were amazed to see us 
Um, I think they thought we were probably better than what we are <laughs> um, because they were asking for pictures, um, autographs and things like that. But it's, it was one of those things that not many people from the mainland go over there. So it was great for them to have sort of people come over and be interested in, in their culture and their, um, their little island. Well, you're, this is the year England get to a World Cup semi-final and you're wearing the England kit. It's not some yeah. other sort of patch-up, one-off. It is the full, it's a fully recognised football association match. Um, that Absolutely. you play in so I mean do you get other than the shirt do you get any mementos for it so yeah we were we were really well looked after to yeah. be fair we got we got three match shirts because we played in a, a friendly game over here before we went so we got that shirt and we got two shirts from the games we played over there um, unfortunately we didn't get to keep any of the training kit track suits or things like that because yeah. that was uh, apparently cost too much um, to let that go um, but we got so much from the Falklands their government we got the plaques and things like that we're invited to their government house, which is uh, equivalent to their 10 Downing Street. And it's sort of, you've got to be suited and booted to go in there. And uh, we're obviously, no one took a suit with them. We were all in our England track suits and uh, we got special dispensation to go in there or there. So it was it was a real, real amazing experience to go across there. Like I say, that was like their 10 Downing Street. And it's almost like the, the proper national team going across there. So yeah, it was a real humbling experience. And like you say, wearing the England shirt in, in a World Cup year, it was um, it was it was amazing, and uh, it's something that I don't think will probably happen again. Trips like that don't come along that often, and to be selected to them, obviously, is is um, a great achievement. It's something that I'm proud of, along with uh, along with my uh, Swindon achievements as well. Yeah, I think you can look back in a few decades' time and look at an England shirt you wore and your Swindon shirt, and you played for your you represented your country and the club you supported as a child, and just think. That'll do. Exactly, yeah. So that's I've, I'm very, very lucky that I've been able to um, live my dreams out. And not many people get that opportunity. Mm. Not many people get to play for their, their football club they support. And I, I did get the opportunity, like say, as minimal as it was, not many people get to play for their country. Again, it was a it was a long week away in Falklands, but I still still managed to do it. And yeah, it's not at the highest, highest level, um, but it's definitely something I'm proud of and an achievement. My usual closing question. Right now, if someone asks you, what's your fondest memory working and playing for Swindon? What would they be? It's got to be it's got to be the whole uh, senior setup from the youth team onwards. Things like in the youth team, you make you make friends for life. You spend so, so much time with those people. People like Aaron Oakley, Miles Story, Mark Francis. They're, they're friends who I go on holiday with now. I still see them not as much as we want to because we're all spread out all over the country. Um, but we're a real sort of close group of friends, always on the WhatsApp. They've probably been messaging me that this whole time I've been speaking to you, pestering me. So I'm going to come back to the WhatsApp with loads of messages about a holiday that we're probably planning, uh, planning to go to. So it's not it's not only a football club, but it gives you friends for life. And then obviously you've got the achievements and the dreams of, of playing for your club. That's the biggest one. I think if I'd have just been a pro and, play, and trained with Swindon, it would have been great. But I actually got that opportunity to cross that white line play for the club and um yeah it's i've lived my my dream out which i'm forever grateful for because um, i know not many people get that chance and i don't blame you for that whatsoever lee bedwell thank you very much thank you very much it's been a pleasure Below Strangers is an independent Swindon Town fan podcast. The music was expertly created by Matthew Kilford and the podcast artwork is by the super talented John Daglish. Thanks for listening. Come on, Swindon.
Hi, Alice Pod fans, it's JR here. If Swindon players were McDonald's items, who would they be? We've had lots of Big Macs, like the legendary Alan McLaughlin, Harry McCurdy, or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant, like Darren Ward. Or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times.